Good morning to each of you. I have come this morning to share with you something that has been very close to me, uh, not just over the years, but especially over the last year. Uh, there are scriptures that God brings to our mind or brings to our attention that sort of you latch on to and say, that's something I need to see and hear. And I want to share with you what the Lord has been teaching me. Um, it's about forgiven, our standing before Christ. Perhaps you're a little bit like me in that over the years, I have struggled with a sense of insecurity, a sense of uh, lack of worth or confidence. Um, that began very early in my life. And I have been called upon to do many things that are way beyond my capacities, like pastor or preach or do a number of things. And I realize that what Zechariah records for us is something that's important to me and maybe there's some like you here as well. Have you ever had haunting fears that you're not up for the task? Do you ever hear in your ear words of... Uh, you're a loser. Who are you to serve Christ? Who are you to teach a Sunday school class? And uh, do you know you're not as good a preacher as the one on radio? Do you know that you're uh, not as pretty as the other uh, person that you envy? Do you know that you are uh, you don't have the credentials of uh, somebody who went to a uh, incredible seminary, got a PhD and has written a number of books. Do you guys ever have any of that kind of like thing goes on in your mind where you compare and contrast yourself by other people? Some of my friends are going, no. <laughs> and you're the one I need to talk to today. <laughs> We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 3. And you're probably saying, where is Zechariah anyway? Well, if you were to look for the book of Matthew, and I hope you can find that, then go back in the Old Testament two books and that's it. So if you would, even now, turn there. And I, it's so important this morning that you follow along in your Bible because we're looking at a vision. It's a picture. It's a portrait. But it is one of the most beautiful portraits of what it means to be forgiven and uh, it is a portrait of Christ. And I can't think of a portrait that I'd rather preach about than a portrait of Christ. Now, the vision that Zechariah has recorded and given to us gives us this incredible, accurate, and appropriate view of ourselves that we wouldn't be able to gain anywhere else. We are going to see in this vision ourselves as believers in Christ through the eyes of Christ. That's when we begin to see who we are, our identity, our worth, and significance. Uh, this vision gives us a view of Christ ruling and reigning on the throne. And he's ruling and reigning over all things. It reminds us of God's sovereign grace. It enables us to understand the spiritual warfare that we face every day of our life. 
And it reveals the true Christian's identity before Christ, in Christ, as justified sinners. So my task this morning is the exposition of Zechariah's vision in chapter 3. We're going to look at three important parts of this vision. Its purpose in history, its power to transform our way of thinking, and then look at practical applications to our daily life. Let's talk about the purpose of this vision. It is a biblical vision. And a biblical vision is like a bridge. A bridge between the past and the future. And it reveals God's purposes and plans that would otherwise not be revealed to us because of our finite understanding. And it turns the ordinary into extraordinary so that life can be seen or perceived through the eyes of heaven, through the eyes of Christ. And it is essential to have a biblical vision. We need a biblical vision. Because without that vision, the Bible tells us what? People perish. They perish, they wander lost in disappointment and in despair. Let's talk as well for a moment about this biblical vision and its purpose and its uniqueness. This vision is truly a wonderful vision. It shows the work of God in history, not just in the past and not just in the day of Zechariah, but how he has worked throughout all history and how he's even working today. Now, to be a prophet in any day, there is a cost and there's a price. And uh, a God-given vision gives a much-needed perspective, an eternal perspective. As I said, to ourselves to our national predicament and to correct and give us an adequate and appropriate view of God. And the level of sacrifice that's called for in a vision inevitably determines the number of people who will accept it and reject it. The prophets of old faced constant rejection Why? Because many times they called their people to repentance. Wasn't a popular message then. Certainly isn't a popular message today. The prophet tells people to return to the Lord. That we have wandered away. And what we're facing today is a result of our wandering. The people didn't want to hear that message. Instead, what did they want to hear? Well, they wanted to hear the prophets. They wanted to hear the right prophets, the selected prophets, to soothe their troubled conscience and to stroke their sagging egos, their national ego. 
He didn't want to hear about judgment or repentance. They didn't want to hear what they needed to hear. <laughs> they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And a prophet living in the 6th century B.C. received a series of eight visions, prophecies if you would, from God. Visions to bridge the past, the present, and the future of Israel. These visions were intended to reestablish the rule of law, the purity of the priesthood, and the plan. A plan to rebuild the destroyed temple in Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. Zechariah was that prophet. He was chosen to be God's spokesman during uncertain, turbulent times. And daunting questions uh, faced the nation. Some that I think that even we are wrestling with. How could Solomon's temple be rebuilt in the midst of cultural confusion? How can we progress when there's so much division amongst us? Had God forgotten his promise to bless us? To bless our nation, as he once did? Would Messiah ever come? Would he ever come to save his people? These and many more questions bred hopelessness in a day of national unrest and uncertainty. Not unlike the day in which we live. So let's consider this fourth of eight visions given to Zechariah. It's found in Zechariah chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, please let's follow along as I read this chapter. I'm going to read it in its entirety. There's ten verses. And I want you to think of the images as if this is a picture, and that's what it is. It's a word picture. And this word picture has incredible doctrine woven in it. It teaches what the New Testament teaches in 10 verses. It tells us who Christ is and what he did for us. We're even in that picture, but you won't see it until I explain it to you later. Well, let's read it. Then he, apparently that is the, an angel who was like a messenger to Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The, the angel of the Lord is referring to Joshua. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin away from you, and I will clothe you with pure, like pure white vestments or robes. And I said, that is Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign, a wonder, an example, a symbol. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And again, I will remove the iniquity of this land, this nation, in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig. Wow. What an incredible vision. Let's talk about its uniqueness. Well, it was an interactive, sort of for the tech people, an interactive, multicolored, three-dimensional scene or vision from heaven. And Zechariah was not only able to observe what was taking place in the vision, but he was also able to speak to the people in the vision. So he could observe and yet also take part in it. So his vision had a past, even a present, and a future historical significance. Not just Israel, but even to us. Let's talk now about the power of this vision. What does it mean? This vision that is intended to transform the way we think. To transform the way Joshua thought. To transform the way Zechariah felt and thought. And it's given to us to help us see and to think differently, certainly about Christ, but also about ourselves. Who are these people in the vision? Well, there is Zechariah, who is the, the prophet, who is recording this for us. There is the angel of the Lord, and he's seated on the throne. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is glorious beyond description. And he presided over the court of heaven. And who is this angel of the Lord? None other than the pre-incarnate Christ. Then there's Joshua, the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord and he's dressed in his priestly attire and he's surrounded by an unidentified group of people which appears that these are followers of his or maybe others who are in the priestly line of work. And then there is inevitably this guy, Satan, 
He is the accuser of the saints. And he is standing to the right of Joshua. So let's get the scene again. We have the angel of the Lord. We have Joshua standing here. And to his right is none other than Satan. And he's standing to the right, as would have been proper in the courts, to be the accuser. The prosecuting attorney. That's what he believed he was to do. He's the accuser. And he has come to press charges against Joshua. And he's going to slander his character. And then there is a fifth group, which are sort of the messengers. They are the heavenly angels. And uh, they're like observers in the court room watching what's taking place with interest, ready to act upon any moment. Now let's look more closely at each of these people to see what we learn. What's the power of these images of these people? Well, let's start with Zechariah the prophet, a man who truly is a great man, but we know very little about him. What he observed in this vision served not only as a warning, but also as a hope to his nation. The word or the name Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Remember what I said, a vision is to bridge together the past, present, even his name is going to be uh, symbolic and going to bring together our understanding of this vision. Now, he was born in captivity. Um, He was a son of a priest. His name means the Lord Yahweh remembers. Likely his parents gave him this name so that he would always remember that God is faithful to his covenant promises. Sometime in Zechariah's life, we are told that the Spirit of God clothed him, clothed him with power, anointed him for ministry as a prophet. And when he and the prophet Haggai, who are uh, prophets at the same time in Judah, when they returned from captivity, they must have been utterly shocked to see the waste and rubble of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But they must have equally been shocked when they looked at the once great nation they knew had also fallen into ruin. If this nation wanted to regain its greatness, it needed to return to the God who made it great. I would remind you that that would be the same message that I would say to my own nation, to our own people. In fact, these were the first words given by the Lord to Zechariah in the first chapter, verse 3, where he says, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you. 
That's the message then. It's the message now. But the Lord also gave further reason for hope to these beleaguered people. The Lord said in Zechariah 8.15, I have purposed, I have determined in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And then the Lord says, fear not. That's also a message that needs to be heard today in our lives. But after years of faithful ministry, Israel rejected Zechariah and the message God gave him. We are told one day, standing between the sanctuary, the temple, and the altar, he spoke to his unrepentant nation words they did not want to hear. Here's what they were. This is what God says. Why do you still disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord and he has forsaken you. And with that, the people were enraged. And they rose up and mercilessly murdered Zechariah. I believe that's referred to in Matthew chapter 23 by our Lord who talked about this as just another example of Israel's callousness of their hardened heart to the voice of the gospel, the message of the prophets. So here's a man, Zechariah, who lived in dark days. And his book was written for those living in troubled days, even like our own. All the vitriolic rhetoric and empty promises made by their politicians and their religious leaders, they only intensified the nation's despair. Where is their reason for hope? They didn't understand. The nation did not understand that the true source of their power has always come from God. That's why the Lord explained to Zechariah in chapter 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but what? But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What a message. If any nation seeks to revive its greatness, it will only come by the power of God. That nation needed to humbly admit that it no longer held its place of greatness among the nations because it had sinned. It had sinned deeply and was in need of the Holy Spirit to bring revival and to empower it as he once did. Well, let's look at the angel of the Lord a little closer. The 
Um, the angel of the Lord is a, truly the central figure of this vision. And everything should really be focused upon him. Who is he? As I mentioned, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. What we see is a theophany. It's a visual manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God. And he's referred to in this vision as the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and the angel. Not an angel, the angel, or the messenger of God. And he's seen enthroned in heaven with absolute authority. We see his authority as he rebukes Satan. He says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, which I believe is also represented in Joshua, who is sort of the representative of that city. Rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire, referring to Joshua? He also had full command over the angels who were ready to carry out his will. He said to them, remove the filthy garments from him. They jumped. Fluttered their wings. I don't think angels have wings, but they jumped. They were ready for action. And by removing Joshua's iniquity, removing these filthy garments, the angel was manifesting his divine nature. The angel of the Lord announced, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothes. I will put righteousness on you. No one has the power to remove sin except God himself. That's his authority. You may remember in Matthew chapter 2. We have a description of a day in the life of Jesus. And it's very much related to this vision. One day as Jesus was preaching in a hot, stuffy, overcrowded house in Capernaum. A man with paralysis was brought to Jesus to be healed. And he shocked the crowd. Jesus did that. He was a controversialist. He shocked the crowd by saying to the men, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow, what a wonderful thing to know. But some of the scribes, religious leaders of Jerusalem were there, and guess what they were saying? He's blaspheming God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They got it right. So Jesus responded, which is easier? Wouldn't it have been fun to see this actually? be? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, hey, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, it's like he said, watch this. I say to you, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. And you know what happened? He did. This demonstrates Christ's undisputed authority to remove the iniquity of sinners just as he removed the iniquity that was on Joshua. And when the angels were prepared to place, to take that filthy rag of clothes off and to put on the righteousness of the angel of the Lord on Joshua... Zechariah interrupted. He got into the vision. And he called out, Hey, let them put on the turban as well. The turban is a, a hat, a cap. He wanted to make sure that Joshua was fully clothed and prepared for the work of ministry. And that cap represented the priest's submission and his reverence before a holy God. So we're told that they put the clean turban on his head and they put on him clean clothes, clean robes. The once defiled priest now stood in the righteousness given him by who? By who? The angel of the Lord who is Christ. Like I say, it's an Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament helping us to understand the work of Christ. Um, the Lord also makes some wonderful promises and, and pledges to Joshua. Angel promised Joshua that if he walked in the ways of the Lord and kept his words that he would rule over the household of the Lord. There was accountability even though he had been cleansed. Joshua was also said to get, to receive, to enjoy open, free access to the throne of God. Now, to Joshua, that was an overwhelming promise and privilege. Oh, by the way, it's one we have now. That's what we have, to come boldly to the throne of grace. What Joshua was promised, we are promised. And after this, the angel of the Lord... gave Joshua and us and even Zechariah incredible insight on in how to read this, cha- this book or to read even this chapter. And he said to Joshua, you and your friends who were seated before you, they are men who are a sign. What you are looking at in this vision is a sign. It's symbolic. It's a type. And you all represent important spiritual truths. So take note of this. And then we are given the first sign. And what was the first sign? The branch. He said, I will send the branch. By the way, who do you think that is going to be? Who is the branch? 
It's Christ. The branch is referred to by the prophets as the one who had come out of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. That's what Isaiah 11 says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump or the the roots of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's a reference to the coming of Christ. Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Who is that going to be? Christ. (laughs) This vision is one of many clear prophecies of the coming of Christ. It's the central hope of the world. The hope of Israel and the hope for all sinners throughout all time is Jesus. Only he can remove our iniquity and place his righteousness on us. But the angel had even more prophetic hope. Verse 19 prompts, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua... On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, he's identifying Joshua as the cornerstone, that he's going to be the cornerstone. Oh, let's see, I think I remember hearing about that in the New Testament. Who is the chief cornerstone that was rejected by Israel? Thank you. You know what? I'll make it easy for you. Almost any question I ask you, you you can just say Jesus or Jesus Christ. I think I pretty much got that. I'll give you the answers ahead of time. The stone is said to have seven eyes. What in the world is that? Seven eyes, I believe, is symbolic of the perfect wisdom and the knowledge that Christ will have, that he will represent. And then we hear something very strange, and he says, the angel says, and I will engrave, or I will etch in its inscription on the stone. And he's likely speaking of engraving on the hands of the branch, who is the chief cornerstone. I will etch on him his hands, his feet, and his side, the marks of the cross. And because of this, because of what God has promised, what he has shown, he said, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. There's only one day in history that that could refer to. And that is the day of Christ's crucifixion. On that day, he removed our iniquity and he placed on us his robes of righteousness. And then he concluded with this description of the gospel of grace. It's really a fascinating thing that sort of concludes this part of the vision. He says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that is after there has been this 
removal iniquity from the land? Every one of you. I think he's referring to the witnesses who were the followers of Joshua, whose name means Jesus. You will invite your neighbors to come under his vine. Who is the vine? I am the vine, okay? We will invite people to come under the vine to receive new life. But he also says, and you will invite them to come underneath the shade of the fig tree, which was a symbol of peace. If you want new life, and you want peace in the midst of dark days, I have just a place for you to go. Go to the vine, And sit under the fig tree, which is Christ. Wow, all of this was promised 600 years before the birth of Christ. Do you think salvation's been in the mind of God since the very beginning or from eternity? Absolutely. Let's take a moment to review Joshua, the high priest. His name means Savior, Yeshua, or Savior. Now don't be confused, this Joshua is not the same Joshua referred to in the book by that name, who led Israel in triumph into the promised land. No, this is the high priest named Joshua who lived almost 700 years later than this first Joshua. He was born in Babylon and came to Jerusalem out of captivity. He was also a sign. He was a sign or a symbol of Christ, our great high priest. He narrowly escaped the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar when his family left Babylon. His grandfather, named Sariah, was killed. His father, whose name was Jehozadak, was captured and taken as a prisoner. But God saved Zechariah. God saved Joshua. Joshua was truly like a brand as uh, the angel Lord said, a brand or a piece of kindling wood that's taken or snatched out of the fire, out of the fires of persecution in Babylon. God has reached down and he has saved this man for God's purposes. He was chosen by God to oversee the reconstruction of the Jewish temple and to reestablish the priesthood which had fallen into disarray and decadence. In this vision, he stands before the angel of the Lord as if he is on trial. And he peers out of place. He peers out of place because he's wearing filthy priestly robes. And he hears Satan's charge right in his ear, speaking to the angel of the Lord. He hears him give a charge, the charge against Joshua, that he was unfit, unqualified. He was a sinner. 
chosen by God to serve him? How could that be? That's what Satan is thinking and saying. Now let's look closer at Satan. Well, this guy plays with your head. He is truly an incredible, deceptive creature. The name Satan means adversary, opponent of the righteous. He is the accuser of the saints. He's the father of lies. And this is another classic portrait of the devil embroiled in spiritual warfare against God's elect. He's not just arguing that a sinner shouldn't be serving God, but who really is he accusing? The angel of the Lord. It sounds something like this. Are you serious, Lord? Are you serious, Christ? That you say that you're holy and you look at these people you choose. They're all losers. They're born losers. Every one of them. And yet you have chosen this guy who's standing there with his robes all soiled. It's very similar to the scene recorded in uh, Job. And there Satan came before the Lord in heaven to seek approval to tempt Job. And he accused Job of having an insincere faith. He argued that Job didn't really love God. But instead he was faking it. Faking his faith only to appease God so he could keep God's favor and the things of prosperity. Satan therefore asked permission to enter God's protective hedge around Job. He argued that when Job was afflicted, his true faith would be exposed and he would curse God. He maintained that sinners only honor God with their lips but not with their hearts. Because see, he can't imagine that. That's how deceived he is. He's thinking that all these sinners want from God is a pass on adversity and the blessing of prosperity. That's what we really want. So Satan not only accused Job of having an insincere faith, but subtly accusing God of making a poor choice to appoint sinners like Joshua, to appoint sinners like us to glorify and to serve him. It is a mystery. Why would God choose us? Satan's got a lot of ammo against us. This is all consistent with Satan's modus operandi to keep accusing the saints, to badgering us, harassing us, that you're unlovable, unforgivable, unworthy. I think he's still doing the same thing today. In this vision, Satan comes before the Lord with the same kind of charge. He accused God, well, if you're so holy, why would you ever let these sinners glorify and worship you? And what's interesting is that Satan rightly identified Joshua as a sinner. How could he miss it looking at the filth on Joshua's robe? His filthy garments represented Israel's sin and shame. Now when Satan accused Joshua for wearing filthy garments, he used the most graphic, 
word in the Hebrew language to describe filth. Now here I go, trying to be as discreet as a pastor can be. It literally means, filth means going forth and going out. It is used to describe excrement or dung that comes out of humans or animals. Joshua then was wearing a robe splattered with human feces all over it. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. As God's mediator representing the people, no priest could ever perform his duties dressed like this. And so you may be asking yourself, hey, wait a minute. Pastor Don, how could Joshua in any way represent a portrait of Christ when he's identified like that, splattered with my feces all over him? Well, it's a great picture. Christ is our perfect high priest. And we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, listen to this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Joshua, with his stained priestly robe, is a picture of Christ who identified with foul, smelly, unworthy sinners like each of us. That's who we were before he removed our iniquity. Now let's talk very quickly about applying this vision. And I'll do it quickly. When we see the angel of the Lord, we are to remember who? Thank you. Christ. He's on the throne, he's ruling, and he's reigning over all things, the nations, the church, and our personal, intimate lives. Nothing is outside of his knowledge, outside of his use, outside of his power. And by his sovereign grace, he has chosen us each to be his forever family. When we see Satan, we're reminded about the satanic laws that Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He will go to outlandish lengths to discredit, to discourage, and dissuade us from glorifying and serving Christ. He will haunt us with our past failures. He will tempt us to taste forbidden fruit, to bring devastating consequences that will discredit Christ. He also, by the way, hates Christ. He will encourage us to hold pity parties in times of adversity, to question if God really is all good and all powerful. And he is subtle. He's a liar. He's devious. And he is powerful. But... He also was defeated by the power of the cross. And you know what? He knows it. But you may be asking, 
Pastor Duncan, where are we? I mean, how do we, are we in this vision in any way? I don't see us there. Well, yes, you're there. Where are you? You're hidden in Christ. You're hidden in Joshua, the high priest. The Bible says we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. What is Joshua wearing? Filthy rags that represent our unrighteousness. Jesus stood condemned in our place when he hung on the cross. He was splattered with our filth and our feces. But we are also to understand that he removed our filthy rags and he clothed us with his pure white robes of his righteousness. So now we can stand before Christ forgiven without any fear of condemnation. He's our perfect high priest who is always making intercession for us. He is deeply committed to us. And we look at the witnesses in this vision, reminded that we too are followers of Joshua, that is of Jesus. And that we are called to invite our neighbors, as he said, to invite them to come to the vine to find new life, and to find peace as they come under the shade of Christ. When you think of the angels, well, we are reminded that when we join them in glorifying and serving Christ, that's where we find our joy as well. This is not news to you, but the world today is desperately searching for significance and self-worth. And may I add, pastoral personal note, in all the wrong places. We won't find what we're looking for by gazing into our navels as if we're to get in touch with our inner self. Nor will we discover our true selves standing in front of a magical mirror. Primping. Or pumping. By the way, I just joined a fitness club and I thought you'd all notice the big change that happened this week. (laughs) Not one person commented about that, a little disappointed. Um, Mirrors lie. They distort our true self-perception. But where can we find what we're really longing for? I'll get it. Where are we going to find this longing in us to discover ourselves, to discover our worth, our purpose for life? Well, John Calvin had one of the greatest answers to that question. I'm going to read it to you. It is evident that a man slash woman never attains to a true self-knowledge until he or she has contemplated the face of God and then come down after such contemplation to look at himself. 
In other words, we will never discover our true worth and identity until we first look into the face of Christ. We will find Christ's face most clearly revealed in the Bible. And by looking daily into the fa- his face like we would see it in Zechariah, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And once we have sufficiently beheld Christ's glory, then we can begin to see ourselves. And how should we see ourselves? Through the eyes of Christ. Just like it was revealed in Zechariah's vision. Let's close with these thoughts. Every man and woman will have to stand someday before Christ. Will you stand forgiven? Or will you be clothed in the filth of your sin? I stand forgiven before Christ. And I urge any of you who are uncertain about your true identity, you've never looked into the face of Christ. Well, I've shown you his face briefly this morning. I'm asking you to consider Christ, our great high priest, the one who took all of the filth of my Sin on him. To think that God would stand like that, his son, his only son, and he would stand with all of my sin on him, that defies human explanation. The only answer is, it's the love and the grace of God that sent him there for us. Will you this day, who do not know Christ, you're not sure of being forgiven. Not sure what will be happen when you stand before him. I'm asking you this morning to consider Christ and call upon his name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's close in prayer. Well, Father, this vision is so clear. It is so overwhelmingly clear that we are sinners And that your son is our great high priest. That you have sent your son to take upon himself our sin. And then not only to put all our filthy rags on him, but then he gives to us his robe of righteousness. Lord, thanks for that robe. Thanks for that new identity we have as your forever family, cleansed in the blood of the Lamb, preserved by the Holy Spirit, destined for the throne, destined to be with Christ forever. May the word that was spoken today be used of you in your own way. May there be those here this morning who are uncertain, call upon you. Maybe come and talk with me or elders here in the church afterwards that we might direct you to Christ. Encourage those who stand here with us this morning as well.
who see the turmoil of our own day and wonder, where are you in the middle of all this? Well, we're reminded by this vision that you're on the throne and you're accomplishing all of your good work even though we can't see it. Teach us how to see ourselves through the eyes of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.